Our scripture comes from Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who was... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those, those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Summer. This, is a, this has been a very big week for Summer. I mean, not only did she get to read scripture, but uh, she also got engaged. So we're, we're um, yeah, all right. <laughs> she loves the attention. Um, well, what we've been doing uh, throughout Lent is we've been ask, uh, looking at these questions that Jesus asks. You know, one of the things that the church does during the Lenten season is we seek God's face in the hopes that he would reveal who we are to ourselves. I mean, that's part of the reason why we seek God's face is not just to seek Him, but to also to understand ourselves in light of who He is. And so we've been doing that by looking at these questions that Jesus asks. And the question He asks, uh, you can find it in verse 44. He asks this question, do you see this woman? Now, I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office, but um, there's one scene in particular where uh, one of the employees at the office named Jim goes over to one of his coworkers, Andy, to talk with him, and, and he's drinking uh, cold orange juice, and he sets his orange juice down. And Stanley, uh, who's Andy's kind of coworker who shares a desk with him right there, inadvertently picks up Jim's orange juice, thinking it, that it's his hot coffee, and he drinks it, and they try to stop him, but he does, they don't catch him in time, and he doesn't pay attention and, and sits it down, and, and he realizes he does this without even flinching. He didn't even notice that it was not hot coffee. It was cold orange juice. And so Jim has this idea, oh, my goodness, if, if he doesn't notice that, what won't he notice? What can we do? What, what, what are the extremes with which we could put this to see how much he'll, he'll really not be able to pay attention to? So the office gets in on this, and um, Phyllis, or Kevin dresses up as Phyllis, who's his, uh, the, the person who works right across from him, and Kevin has this whole conversation with Stanley 
as Phyllis, Stanley doesn't notice. Um, Andy takes his shirt off and has, is bare-chested except for a tie and has a whole conversation with Stanley. He doesn't notice. Um, Michael calls a meeting in the conference room where all of the chairs are facing the opposite way except for Stanley's, and he goes and he sits down, doesn't notice. Dwight brings in a pony into the office, uh, uh, an animal, and Stanley doesn't the whole time he's just sitting down doing his uh, crossword puzzle. And I bring that up because uh, Jesus' question, I think, is particularly poignant for us because I think for a lot of us, we go through life like Stanley. We go through life not really paying attention to what's going on around us, much less the very people that are directly in front of us. And that's curious. Why is that? Why do we go through life not actually seeing other people? And why does it even matter? And if we wanted to, how could we become the kind of people that actually see other people? And so those are really the three questions I want to try to answer during our time together, is um, why we don't see people, why we must see people, and how we can see people. So why we don't, and, or uh, yeah, why we don't, and why we must, and how we can. So first, why, why is it that we don't really see people? Why are we like Stanley? Well, let's look at the story. The story uh, takes place at a dinner party. It's hosted by this guy named Simon. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious leader. And Jesus is the guest of honor. And he's throwing this kind of fancy dinner party. And in the middle of this dinner party comes this woman. And she just crashes the party. She, she just barges in. And what we know about her, you find in verse 37, we find out that she is, quote, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which is Bible language for that she's a prostitute. In this particular cultural context, this is somebody that would have been seen as uh, deviant, as contagious, as someone who did not belong at a fancy-pants dinner party like this. I mean, to put it in modern terms, this is someone who would be on, like, the sex offenders list. There's that level of stigma associated with her, and... She comes in like a wrecking ball, Miley, and she barges in and, and creates this scene. She's, she, you know, Jesus is eating there, and he would have his, his sandals off, bare feet, and so she's weeping uncontrollably. Her, ta- her tears are hitting his feet. She's, she's wiping his feet with her hair. She's kissing his feet. She's pouring uh, ointment on, the, on her feet. Like, this is a big, like, this is a record scratch sort of moment, Everything just stopped. Uh, no one can pretend that this is not happening. And so I think Jesus' question, verse 44, is a little funny when he says, do you all see this woman? Because they would all be like, yeah, this is kind of hard to miss. This is like a, a big deal that's happening in front of us. But he's not asking that question to say, are you observing what's happening? He's asking something more profound. He's asking, do, do you see this woman in her humanity. Do you see what she is doing right now and the beauty and the profundity of it? And the reason why Jesus even has to ask that question is because this is not easy for us. We, we don't see, but why? Let me give you two uh, reasons real quick. The first reason why we don't see people is because in our current cultural moment, it's hard for us to see anything we, we live in what cultural analysis refer to as the, quote, the distraction economy. 
There's a journalist by the name of uh, Oliver Berkman who says, quote, your attention is being spammed all day long. I mean, think about the amount of things that are coming at you. Uh, news feeds, emails, phone calls, text messages, DMs, notifications, ads, pop-ups. I mean, I'm sure it's happening in your pocket right now. Like, we are bombarded with the beeps and the dings and the alerts. And what all these things are doing is they are saying, hey, look at me. Give me your attention. That is what... Um, that's, that's what's happening. Everything is, is jockeying for your attention. In fact, research shows that we are distracted or that we are interrupted on average up to every three minutes. Every three minutes. And that's on purpose. Companies are jockeying for your attention because your attention is where the money is. Uh, this is why it's called clickbait. You, you are baited into clicking it and, and giving it your attention. In fact, there are thousands of apps and devices that are specifically engineered to get your attention. In fact, I, I read this in a book uh, recently, and I thought this was fascinating. This, he, he says this, the author says this, quote, your phone doesn't actually work for you. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-billion corporation in California, not you. You're not the customer, you're the product. It's your attention that's for sale. Of course, this is, uh, is also what's driving you know, social media algorithms. I mean, the name of the game is who is it that can hold your attention the longest? Uh, they do research every year to, de to determine how long, uh, on average, our attention spans are. And so if you go back, back in two th the year 2000, back before the phones and the digital revolution, our attention span was 12 seconds. You could, you could look at something, you could hold your attention on something for 12 full seconds without getting distracted. Now it has dropped and it's down to eight seconds which even that feels generous <laughs> to me, if I know myself. But to put that into perspective, a goldfish has the attention span of nine seconds, which means we're losing to goldfish. That's how bad our attention span is these days. But, but this is the, the point, is that it's hard for us, it's hard for us to see people because it's hard for us to see anything these days, if it's longer than eight seconds. But there's a second reason why it's hard, and, and I would say this, it's because it's hard for us to see people as people, as people who are worthy of our attention in the first place. Uh, look, at what, um, look at what Simon does in the middle of this dinner party. Here comes this woman, she comes barging in, and look how he reacts in verse 39. He thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He labels her and he defines her by her moral failure. He only sees the worst thing about her, and he says that's, what she, that's who she is. Now think about this. This is pretty fascinating. You have all of these non-religious men in her life her clients, her, her Johns, whatever you want to call them. And these are people that relate to her that, as if she's a commodity to be used. Uh, she's, she's somebody to be 
uh, exploited, taken advantage of, and then discarded. And then now you have all these religious people in her life that see her as a sinner. They see her as a, as a failure. They see her as somebody who's made all these terrible, bad decisions. And she is somebody to be avoided. I can't believe that Jesus is letting uh, her touch him. Avoid this person. Which shows you um, both religious and non-religious people have this thing in common. They don't see her. They have both reduced her in some ways so that they can discard her, which shows you that it does not matter if you are religious or not. There's something inside of the human heart that wants to do this to other people. Inside of every human heart, regardless of, where you, regardless of whether you're religious or not, wants to dehumanize others. We want to minimize and caricaturize each other. And so it, it takes a lot of different forms. The way that we label people we say things like this. We say, oh, she's toxic, or he, he's a narcissist, or uh, she's woke, he's a trumper, she's a Karen, he's a boomer, she's a drunk, he's a criminal, they're transgender, they're evangelical. Whatever the label is, we, we label people, and when we do so, it's us drawing caricatures of them in our minds, and which means we've either distorted their humanity or we've, we've reduced their humanity, and as a result, we feel justified in being able to dismiss them, to discard them. So that's you know, two reasons why we don't see people, but this raises the second question, which is, well, why does it matter? Why, why should we see people? Why must we see people? Well, let's keep going. Let's go back to the story. Here's this woman. She's created this big scene, and uh, the Pharisee kind of rolls his eyes at her, and uh, Jesus starts to talk to him. He engages him, and he throws out this thought experiment, this parable in verse uh, 41. We're not, we don't have time to really get into it. But it's, it's amazing, but we'll, we'll save it for another sermon. But notice what happens after that. In verse 44, it says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, don't miss what just happened there. He turns towards her. He's been talking to Simon this whole time, and Simon no longer gets Jesus' gaze. She does. He's talking to him, but he's looking at her, which means she is receiving Jesus' full attention. Jesus is looking at her face to face, looking at her in the eyes. What in the world would that have felt like? What would that have been like to have Jesus look at you like this? There's an uh, author, theologian, who writes about this particular moment. His name is Zach Eswine, and here's what he says in one of his books. Referring to Jesus, he says, There was no lust in his eyes, no use of her, behind his smile, no flirtatious familiarity or flattery in his tone. Had she ever in her life been looked at by a man with such delightful purity, the sheer enjoyment of human company? And in turn, had these men ever known that they could learn to look at a woman in this way of grace? He 
sees her in her humanity, and in so doing, he invites her to see herself in her humanity and invites all the men in the room to see her in her humanity to show that this is someone that is worthy of our attention. One of my pastoral heroes is uh, Fred Rogers. If that name doesn't ring a bell for you, that's Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, host of the old famous children's TV show, which later spawned Daniel Tiger. If uh, Tom Hanks played um, Fred Rogers in a movie recently called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and if you want a graduate-level course on how to see people, watch that movie. There's one scene in particular where they're on the set of the show. They're filming the show. They're in between takes, and uh, Fred Rogers is on the set, and he's sitting there, and he's talking to one of the little kids. They'd brought in, a, you know, some parents had brought in uh, this little kid to uh, be on the show for the day or whatever, be on the set for the day. And Fred is kneeling down, and he's looking at this kid eye to eye, face to face, and he's just fully engaged, fully locked in with this little kid, asking him these questions, talking about this fun sword that he's playing with, and they're laughing, and, he, and, and, and everybody you can tell kind of behind the scenes who's producing this, the show is a little annoyed that he's wasting so much time talking to this kid, because they're now behind schedule. In fact, the producer says, we're now 73 minutes behind schedule for the show. And there happened to be this journalist who was there that day on set, and he leans over and he asks the producer, how, how, how often does this happen? And the producer looks at him and says, every day. And what that shows you is that Fred Rogers believes, believed that, that this child is worthy of my attention that this child is important and this conversation is important and I'm not going to be hurried along or interrupted to put on a show when I've got a person in front of me. Every child that he interacted with, he wanted that child to know, you matter and I see you. And so here's the question. Have you ever been looked at like that? Where someone takes the time to give you their full attention and to be fully present with you. If you've had the opportunity to experience something like that, it's a complete gift. There are times where Catherine and I, my wife Catherine and I, will come home and, and we'll, we'll be kind of catching up and, and telling stories of what's happened that day. And sometimes we'll experience a gift like this where someone was kind enough to be present with us and, and seek to understand us and seek to take on our unique burdens that we carry and the phrase that we'll use with each other to describe that moment is we'll say, I felt so seen. You probably use that phrase as well. It's, it's, it's this idea of somebody gets me. Somebody for a moment took the time to understand me. And that is what every human being wants. That's what every human heart craves is for another human being to look at us to tell us, not even with our words, but just by their body language, just with the amount of time they're giving us, that you matter, and I'm seeking to understand you. Every human being wants that. And so when Jesus asked this question, do you see this woman? It is an invitation for everybody in the room, and therefore it's an invitation as us as well, to move towards people like that, because the reality is, is to see people 
That is a requirement in the labor of love. You cannot love people apart from seeing them. Love is a particular thing. It is not a general thing. You cannot love faceless masses of crowds of people. You can like them. You can be generous towards them. You can, you can be kind-hearted towards them. But, but to love somebody refers to you loving an, a particular individual person, one person at a time. You know, there's uh, a lot of people in the city that say, we, you know, we love Memphis. We're for Memphis, which is a beautiful thing. And even here at our church, we love Midtown. We talk about it all the time. We're in Midtown. We're for Midtown. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. The question is, is how do we do that? How does that express itself? It expresses itself particularly through seeing another human being, which, you know what that requires? That requires us to stop. It requires us to get outside of ourselves and to actually start to pay attention to somebody else, to do the uh, hard, empathetic work of getting inside of somebody else's shoes, asking questions, getting curious, and figuring out, okay, what is it like for this person to be this person? The reason why we must learn the skill of seeing other people is because it is what is required in the name of love. We cannot be people who love. We will not become people who love until we learn to see, to see that people, regardless of what they are, are people that are worthy of our attention and worthy of our compassion for no other reason than just the fact that they're made in God's image. Which raises this third and really hard question to answer, how do we become people like that? Because especially when, when there's this uphill climb, we've got all these forces working against us. We're not good at this. We're not naturally good at this. We're naturally good at only seeing ourselves living in our little tunnel vision. How do we become people that actually see other people? Well, let's try to answer that with the rest of the um, time that we have. Uh, you know, this whole time I've been talking about how wonderful it is to be seen, how delightful of an experience it is. But that's not always true. I mean, if you're, um, if you're going 90 miles an hour down I-40 and the cop sees you, that's not a pleasant experience. Uh, even just think about Santa. As the song goes, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. I mean, <laughs> that's terrifying on multiple levels. But, but the, the, the fear that we have around being seen is because to be seen is to be exposed. This is why uh, people often are, are terrified about public speaking, doing what I'm doing right this moment, because look at all these eyes on me. It's, ter- it's a little terrifying. You're, I'm exposed up here. I mean, I'm hiding behind this, but, I, but you can all see me. And being exposed is, is our greatest fear. And so look at what happens in this um, story. Jesus, Jesus sees this woman, but in, he is not naive about who she is. I mean, look at what he says in verse 47. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. He's not glossing over her failures. He's not glossing over her sins. He acknowledges that this person, she's responsible for her choices. Her sins are many. I mean, there are probably multiple families, tons of families out there that have been destroyed and she's partly responsible for. He doesn't gloss over her sin, but but keep reading. Here's what he says. Her sins, though they are many, they are forgiven. He sees her in all of her dignity and all of her depravity and he moves towards her with grace. 
with kindness, with forgiveness. And because she was forgiven much, she loves much. I mean, that's why she's going so over the top with this, this love and this worship and the tears and the kissing. She, she, is, she is loving much because she is somebody that has been forgiven much. But it raises this question, okay, who is Jesus to just forgive people? Who gives him that right? In fact, that's what they say in verse 49. Who is this? There's even forgiven sins. The only reason why Jesus can forgive us is he can see and forgive us only because he was seen and was condemned. Jesus can see us and forgive us only because Jesus was first seen and condemned. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel tells us that Jesus bears our sins. He takes our sins upon himself. So think about everything in your life and every human being's life um, every moment where we've been apathetic towards another person, every moment where we have chosen ourselves over somebody else, every moment where we have turned a blind eye to somebody in need, every moment where we felt like this person is not worth me being inconvenienced for, this person isn't worth my attention. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to go somewhere else. All of those moments in all of our lives, Jesus puts them on like he's putting on a coat, this disgusting coat, and he gets put up on a cross, and he gets lifted up to the Father so that the Father can examine him. And what does the Father do? The Father turns his face away just like in that song we're about to sing in a second. It's, it's so hideous. It's so repulsive. The father turns his gaze away from Jesus. And Jesus in that moment cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets forsaken. He gets seen and rejected on the cross so that you might never lose the gaze of God again. Jesus is known and rejected so that you might be known and accepted. And what that means is, if you find yourself in Christ by faith, God sees all the things about you that you don't want anyone else to see. Your pettiness, your prejudice, your hatred, your temper, your anger, all the things about you you really don't want anyone else to see. He sees it all. And he moves towards you with compassion, that you still matter. And he sends his son Jesus to take all of that off you and him to bear it on the cross and him to get punished and him to, get, and him to pay for it in your place. When you know that you are seen and loved at the same time, that's like a nuclear reaction going off in your soul. And here's what that does. That does, that does a ton of things, but I'll, I'll just give you two real quick and then I'll finish. When that gets inside of you, that you are seen and that you are loved, that gives you a gracious view of yourself. Because when you begin to realize, okay, he sees me in all of my mess, that means my mess is a real thing and, and it humbles you. You don't have to pretend it's not there anymore. And what that does is it removes all of your moral superiority that you feel over other people. I can no longer prop myself up over other people that I think are beneath me. It, it destroys all of that. And because you know that you are loved and met with grace and compassion, you can take yourself less seriously. You're liberated from berating yourself when you fail, when you fail to live up to your own standards. 
You can laugh at yourself, laugh at your flaws, laugh at your mistakes. You have a gracious view towards you. And then here's the other thing. It gives you a gracious view towards other people. Where you stop this instinct to label and minimize and discard people. They're conservative, they're liberal, they're awkward, they're whatever. And you start to relate to people as what people really are, which is really complex, full of contradictions, and guess what? Exactly like you. So you see somebody who is just annoyingly, compulsively controlling, and you begin to realize, okay, underneath that, they're really afraid. And you know what it's like to be afraid. And so you can have compassion on them. You, you get around that person who has zero self-awareness, and they're always name-dropping, they're always trying to make themselves look impressive, they're always trying to one-up people in conversations, and you begin to realize, okay, deep down underneath all of that, they're really insecure. And good grief, I know what it's like to feel insecure and to really want people to like me so you can have compassion for them. You start to see them as people. The way that that happens is when you root yourself in the knowledge that God sees you. And rather than discarding you, he embraces you. That is the gospel, and not only is that the gospel, that is the way that we now live as we follow Jesus. We move towards people with compassion, with seeing them, and with a desire to embrace rather than discard. Well, consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see. We live uh, so much of our lives distracted, so many things jockeying for our attention, so self-oriented, so desperate for other people to see us. Help us to be filled with the joy and the wonder of knowing that you see us. And I pray that that would in turn make us the kind of people that see others. Only you can do this work in us, and so we lay ourselves before you, begging for your mercy, begging for your spirit to come and change in us that which only you can change. Make us into people that see. And we pray all this in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.